First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. 1 Samuel 29, verses 1 through 30, verse 6. Then the Philistines gathered all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites camped at a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day, I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and you're going out, and you're coming in with me, and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the lords do not favor you. Therefore return now and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, But what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you? that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king. Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now therefore rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went to Jezreel. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south in Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and those who were there, from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept, until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelites, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. My God, rescue me from my enemies, for they are in hot pursuit. I did nothing to deserve this God. They're constantly watching, hoping to take my life. You've kept track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I'm thanking you, God, out loud in the streets, 
You've been a safe place for me, a good place to hide. I can always count on you. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we have come today to worship you and to hear from you. And Lord, it is you that we need to hear from. We need to hear your word spoken by your spirit to our hearts. And so God, in these next few minutes, Father, would you speak to us? Would you give us the ears to hear you and hearts to obey you? That we might follow you. And that we might worship you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 29? Uh, we began our journey through the book of 1 Samuel many, many months ago, uh, but today is our final message in our study of this book because we're going to look at the final three chapters of 1 Samuel today. Uh, we will jump back into uh, 2 Samuel later on this year, but we're coming today to the end of this part of the story of Samuel. And as the title of the message says today, uh, some stories just don't end well. Now, I don't know if you've ever read a, a book or, or seen maybe a movie and you got to the end of the movie and you thought, I don't even know why I watched this movie. This thing is so sad. Uh, this thing ended in such a terrible fashion. Uh, where, where is the happily ever after ending uh, that I have been waiting for? Because that's, that's what we, want, we all want, and yet some stories just aren't like that. And, and in case you've never read the book of 1 Samuel before, I just want to give you a fair warning at the beginning of this message that this book uh, does not end well. A lot of people die at the end of this book. Uh, there is no happily ever after at the end of 1 Samuel. And yet, if we will listen to the real message of this book, and if we will run to the person that this story was really written to point us to, then there can be a happily ever after in our life, even if there wasn't for all of the characters in this story. Now, we have a lot of ground uh, to cover today, and so we'll have to move pretty quickly. But what we're going to see is that in each of these three chapters, there is a battle that takes place. So there are three battles in three chapters, and there is at least one major lesson in each of these battles that I believe the Lord would have us to take to heart. So three battles and three lessons. And so first off, in chapter 29, we can learn from a battle that was never fought. A battle that was never fought. This was a battle that we think that maybe David is going to have to fight, uh, but in the end, he gets out of it. Now we first started hearing about this battle way back in chapter 28 when it said that the Philistines, who were the enemies of God's people, were lining up to go to war against the Israelites. And we need to remember that David, who ha has been living as a fugitive for some time now, had run to the Philistines. He was living among the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. And at the beginning of chapter 28, when they're lining up for this battle, uh, King Achish, where he had been living, comes to David and says, David, now you do understand that in this battle that's about to happen, uh, you're one of us now and you are going to fight on our side. 
And if you remember, we spoke about how David gave a pretty ambiguous answer to that question uh, when he said to Achish, you know what your servant can do. Now, Achish took that to mean he was going to fight on their side, but really he just said, you know what I can do. He didn't say, you know who I'm going to do it for uh, once we come to the battlefield. But all of this has taken place in this setup for this battle in chapter 28. But then the narrator kind of hit the pause button on the story of this battle and, and took us to Saul's visit to the witch at Endor that we talked about last week. And now, here in chapter 29, we're picking back up with this battle story again. The Philistines are lining up and they're marching in review. And here comes David and his 600 men at the rear of the Philistine army. And there were five Philistine kings. Achish was one of those five kings. And of course, he was all about David fighting with them in the battle. But the other four Philistine kings were not all about it. And as you read in this story, they basically were like, what in tarnation is this guy doing here? He is the one who uh, killed the giant Goliath. He is the one that they sang songs about. And, and then they kind of think about what David might be thinking. They think, you know, how could he get in the good graces of Saul in a more effective way than by turning on us in the middle of this battle? If he did that, uh, he would win Saul back over. He would win the people of Israel back over. That's probably what he was, is going to do. And so these other four kings basically ream out uh, Achish and say, what are you thinking uh, bringing him up here? You need to send him back home. And so Achish, kind of with his tail between his legs, goes back to David in verse 6 of chapter 29 and has to break the news to him that David and his men are not going to be allowed to go uh, onto the battlefield with the Philistines. And, and this conversation is really pretty comical because Achish is so fooled by this point by David that he really believes that David has come over to his side and so he's actually embarrassed that he has to tell David that uh, he's not allowed to fight with him in the army. And, and so as you read these next few verses, Achish almost goes over the top. He's effusive in his praise uh, for, for David. He's basically saying, David, you, you know, you know that I love you right. I mean, you know that you're like my best friend. You know, you are like the glaze on a Krispy Kreme donut to me, David. That's, that's what you are to me. But, but David, it's not me. It's these other guys. These other guys, I mean, I don't know how to put this to you, David, but, but they just don't trust you as far as they can throw you. And so there's nothing I can do. My hands are tied. David, you're going to have to wake up tomorrow, and you just need to go back with your men to where you came from. And then in verse 8, David acts like he is mad. He says to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you? that I may not go fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. Now, I really don't believe that David was mad at all about this. In fact, I think he was pretending to be mad, and yet on the inside he's saying, thank you, Lord, for getting me out of this situation, because he knew that he could not fight against his own people, and yet I don't think he knew how he was going to get out of this situation alive. But the Lord comes to his rescue and delivers him from this situation. I think there's a pretty clear lesson uh, that we can take away from this battle that David never had to fight in. And here is the lesson. God's providential mercy, God's providential mercy follows his children. 
I use the word providence there because it wasn't luck that David didn't have the fight in this battle. It was God's providence. And in God's providence, he kept his servant David from fighting in this battle. And what is amazing to see is all the surprising ways that God can go about carrying out his providential plan and bringing it to pass. Think about who God uses to bring about his plan in David's life. He uses these four pagan Philistine kings who just don't trust David. And he uses them to deliver David so that he doesn't have to fight against Israel. Because if he did fight against Israel, there is no way he would have been able to become the king of Israel. And so God is able to use people that we would not expect. He's able to use anybody to bring about his plan in the life of a believer. I came across recently the old children's story about a Christian woman who lived alone and was very poor. And she was praying one day for food. And she was praying, Lord, would you just, I don't know how you're going to do it. Will you just give me today my daily bread? This woman lived next door to an atheist neighbor who overheard her praying and asking God to give her some daily bread. And so this atheist neighbor thought, I'm going to have a little fun at my naive Christian neighbor's expense. And so she went out and bought two loaves of bread and left them on the doorstep of her neighbor's house. And so her neighbor went out, opened the door, found the bread, immediately began praising the Lord, thanking the Lord for answering her prayer. And uh, the atheist neighbor came over and, and was going to uh, demythologize her experience and tell her, no, it wasn't uh, the Lord who answered your prayer. It was me that gave you this bread. But the lady was ready for that. And the Christian woman replied and said, oh, yes, it was the Lord who answered my prayer, even though he used the devil to do it. You know, God has all kinds of ways of accomplishing his purposes in our lives. He can use anything or anyone that he wants to. Another thing that stands out to me is how merciful God is in this story. That's why I called it God's providential mercy. Because if you remember last week, we talked about how foolish it was for David to run to the land of the Philistines in the first place. How David was being driven by fear and not by faith when he made that decision. And so David really is the one who has gotten himself into this mess. David's the one who has got himself into this predicament. It was entirely his fault. And yet God is so merciful to him that God brings him out of this situation without David even having to lift a finger. Now we are not David we don't play the same role in salvation history that King David did. But nonetheless, when David wrote Psalm 23, when he said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's not just true for David, but that's true for every one of God's children. And I'm sure if you know Jesus as your Savior, you can look back on your life. And you can count many times when God's mercy has followed you. Many times I look back in my life and I see times when God's mercy came to my rescue. Now there are times when the Lord allowed me to reap the consequences of my sinful choices. But hopefully we all know that even that is God's mercy. Even that is his mercy because he's showing us that that particular pathway of 
sin leads to destruction so that we will not walk that way again. But Christian, aren't you thankful that even when we mess up, and even when we make foolish choices, where we almost make a total mess of things, like David did here, that God's mercy pursues us still. Because his providential mercy will not let his children go. So in verse 11, we find David and his men doing as they were instructed to do. They head back from the battlefield and they begin the long 50 or 60 mile trek uh, back to the town where they had been living, this little town called Ziklag. So we've already learned from a battle that David never fought, but now let's learn in chapter 30 from a battle that David won. Now you can imagine walking 25 to 30 miles a day for two days, and then on the third day, as David and his men finally made it to Ziklag, you can imagine how much they were looking forward to the comforts of home, the comforts of being back with their wives and with their children again, but such was not to be the case. Because when they they walked into the town of Ziklag, they discovered that their entire city had been burned down with fire, And to their horror, all of their wives and all of their sons and their daughters had been captured by the Amalekites, who if you remember in chapter 15, Saul did not utterly destroy as God had instructed him to do. And here David is reaping the consequences of that. Verse 4 indicates that for David and his men, after all that they had been through, this was almost more than they could take. It said that they cried, or we might say that they cried so much that they could not cry anymore. And David cried with them. His wives had been taken. His family had been taken also. But for David, the situation got even worse because for some of the men, their grief and their sorrow turned to anger. And they began to look for a place to put that anger on, and they put it on their leader, David, who had led them into this situation. And so it says that some of them were even speaking of stoning David to death. This is the situation that David is in. We don't know how many people voted for his stoning, how many of his 600 men, but when even one person votes for you to be stoned, that's not a good day. This wasn't a good day for David, but what I really want us to notice here is how David responds to all of this. He could have given up. He could have lost all hope. He could have run away in fear to try to save his life, but instead, look at what he does in verse 6 of chapter 30. It says, now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself and the Lord his God. And there's a lesson in that for us, I believe. What was true for David is true for all of us. God's children can find strength in him for every situation that we encounter in life. And it's hard to imagine everything that David had been going through. For years now, he had been living on the run, living in the desert, living in caves. Many times he came within an inch of his life as he was on the run from King Saul. Now he had just gotten out of this situation where the Philistines, where he could have died as well. Maybe he thought, I'm going to get back to Ziklag. Things are going to settle down for a little bit. But then he gets back home and his city has been burned down and all his family members have been taken and the family members of all of his men. And as one person put it, this was almost like the last straw after the last straw. 
It was more than anybody could have been expected to take. And, and I don't claim to know today where everybody in this room is and what is going on in your life right now. Maybe there's some of you that you're, you're feeling distressed just like David was. Maybe there's some that are feeling grief-stricken over loss as David was. Maybe there's some who are, who are fearful as David certainly was in this time. Maybe, maybe you're just feeling run down and, and depleted spiritually. Maybe the low fuel light has come on on the dashboard of your heart spiritually, and you're just, you're just run down, and that's, that's where you are. And so what can you do? Where, where can we go to regain our strength? Well, we need to do what David did. We need to run to the Lord and find our strength in Him. And that requires taking time to be in His presence. And you know, maybe the first thing that we need to do is just to get before the Lord and just be honest about the situation. Just be honest about what's going on in our life and, and pour out our hearts to him. That's so often what we read David doing in the Psalms. Look at these words from Psalm 25. David said to God, turn yourself to me and, and have mercy on me for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses, God. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. And maybe that's what you need to do. Just get before God and pour out your soul to him and tell him what's on your heart. But when you do that, don't just vent to the Lord, but stay in his presence long enough for him to bring you to the place he brought David at the end of that verse when he said, for I put my trust in you. You know, sometimes I think that we don't allow the Lord to really strengthen us the way that he strengthened David here because we just don't spend enough time in his presence. We're always in a hurry. And even when things in our life are unraveling and things in our life are going so badly that you would think it would drive us to our knees and it would drive us to the Lord, and yet even then we don't go to him, or if we do, it's just for a moment here or, or a moment there. Friend, when is the last time that you just took an extended time to be with the Lord? Maybe for a few hours where you were just in his presence and you just read his word and you sang to him and you poured out your heart to him and you prayed to him and you let him minister to your soul and, and strengthen your soul with, with no other agenda but just to be with him. Maybe someone will say, well, I just don't have time for that. Well, friend, we have to make time for that. We have to carve out time for that because the health of our souls depends on that. Don't just keep burning the candle at both ends and, and watching your spiritual energy for the Lord going down, down, down without doing anything about it. Let's do what David did. Let's strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And when we do that, we'll be able to go out and fight whatever battle is in front of us like a lion because we'll know that the lion of Judah goes with us. You know, the thing I notice about David also is that after verse 6, after this wake-up call, after he strengthens himself in the Lord, he begins to act differently. He begins to act more like the David that we read about earlier in 1 Samuel and less like the David that we've been reading about for the past few chapters. Because here's the deal, just like for all of us, when David finds his strength in God, he starts to live in a more godly way. He starts to live a more godly life. And the first godly thing I see David doing, I see it in the very next verse. He seeks God again. 
He seeks God again. Look in verse 7 with me. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where they stayed, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men. For 200 stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Bezor. And so in verses 7 and 8, it says that David called for the priest and asked him to bring the ephod with him. That was a garment that the priest wore. And while it does not specify this in the text, we know from other scripture that inside that ephod is where the Urim and the Thummim were kept that were used to determine the will of God. And so David is seeking God. David is asking God what he should do, whether he should pursue this troop or not. And, and, you know, as you look back over the past few chapters, David, at least as recorded, David hasn't even talked about God since chapter 26. And David hasn't done this. David hasn't inquired of the Lord and asked the Lord what he should do since all the way back in chapter 23. And so maybe for the first time in a long time, David is realizing how much he needs the Lord, how much he needs to be seeking the Lord. And maybe, friend, maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're, you're here today for the first time in a long while. You're back in church. You're back in worship today. And you're, you're here because you know that you need the Lord. And somehow he's, he's used circumstances in your life to, to wake you up to that reality. And you know that you need him. And so you're here because you want him, again, to be at the center of your life. And if that's you, friend, we're so glad that you're here. And what I would say to you is what I would hope you would say to me. And that's keep on seeking God. Keep on pursuing him. Keep on letting him be the one who guides your path because he's the only one who can make our paths straight before us. The text tells us that when David and his men went after the army, they came to a brook and 200 of David's men were too tired to go on. So they stayed there at the brook and that becomes an important point in just a moment. But let's pick up the story there in verse 11. It says, Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate and they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him for he, hadn't eaten, he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. And then David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And we need to remember that David is pursuing this army, but he doesn't know who the army is. He doesn't know where the army comes from or where the army has gone. He's in the middle of the desert. And so again, you see God's providential mercy at play here where they happen in the middle of the desert upon this uh, half-dead Egyptian man who has been left behind by the army. We find out he hadn't eaten or drank anything for three days. So they give him some food. They give him a Chick-fil-A sandwich and some sweet tea. And the guy perks right up. 
But he would have perked up even more if they had given him that. But they gave him some, some raisins and, and some figs. And, and he starts talking. And they find out that he was a part of that army that had attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire. And to make a long story short, he promises to take David and his men down to the camp. If David promises not to kill him. And so that's what he does. Pick up the story with me in verse 16. And when he had brought him down, they were there spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines, from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's Spoil. And so when David and his men come upon the Amalekites, they're, they're spread out, they're, they're eating, they're drinking, they're having a big party, they don't suspect anything. And so David comes in and, uh, and attacks them, and, and the text really emphasizes how David is able to reclaim, not a part of what was taken, he's able to reclaim everything uh, that had been taken. Not only what was taken from Ziklag, but what had been taken from all the other towns as well. And so David and his men are coming back with a lot of spoil from this battle. And that spoil becomes the focus of the next few verses because it causes a little rift among David's soldiers. Look in verse 21. It says, Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they couldn't follow David, whom they had also made to stay at the brook Bezor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. And so it was from that day forward he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. So again, they make it back to this brook where those 200 weary men are waiting for them. And the text tells us that some of David's men, we don't know how many, maybe it was even the majority, but some of his men were worthless men. It's the same word that's used to describe Nabal a few chapters before this and to describe Eli's worthless sons back at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. Some of David's men, some of his soldiers are described here as worthless men, greedy men, who, who say, we'll give you back your wives and your kids, but you're not getting any of your stuff back. Right? You didn't go with us to the battle, and so you're not getting any of the, 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 the bounty from this battle. We're going to keep it all for ourselves. And David, much to his credit, stands up to his own men and puts his foot down and said, No, we're not going to do that. And I love how in verse 23 he interprets theologically what had happened to them. He says, We're not going to do that because the Lord is the one who has given us this victory. This wasn't a victory we earned on our own. This was a victory that the Lord has given us because of his grace. And because of that, because this is all because of his grace, we're going to show grace to these 200 men who were too tired 
to keep going. We said earlier that because David found his strength in God, he started to live in a more godly way. He sought God, but also here he shows grace. He shows grace, again, because he knows that he's been the recipient of grace. And it almost goes without saying that the same should be true with us who know Jesus as our Savior. We have received incredible grace from God, and we should be a people who show lavish grace to others. And so, friend, right now in your life, who is someone in your life that God is calling you to show more grace to than you have been showing? Uh, Maybe it's your friend. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's a co-worker. Who is it in your life that God is leading you to show grace to, the grace that you have received? Let's be a people who show grace because we're a people who have been shown grace. In verse 26 and down to the end of the chapter, we read that David takes some of the spoil and he sends it as gifts to his people all over Judah. And certainly God used those gifts that David gave to help pave the way in just a few chapters for David to be accepted as their next king. Now, before David can become the second king of Israel, chapter 31 tells us what happens to the first king of Israel, King Saul. And as I said earlier, it is not a happy ending. Let's read chapter 31 together. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And so it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Asterisk and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall at Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Well, we've learned so far about a battle not fought. And we learned from a battle that was won, but in the last few minutes we have, let's see what we can learn from this third battle, a battle lost. The narrator has started to tell us about this battle several times already, but keeps breaking off the story. And you almost get the impression that he is putting off telling this story for as long as he could, perhaps because he doesn't wish to tell it, but in the end this story must be told. And of course, we already know, if we've read through this book, what is going to happen. Samuel told us in chapter 28, we know that Israel is going to lose. 
We know that Saul is going to die. We know that Saul's sons are going to die, but it's still not pleasant to read about it here in chapter 31 when it actually takes place. And the language that is used throughout this chapter reflects the fact that this was an unmitigated disaster. Four times in this passage we read the word die or died. Three times we read the word flee or fled. We read the word fall or fallen. We read about people being struck down, people being stripped, people being cut off, and people being nailed to a wall. In verse 2, we read about how three of Saul's four sons died on the same day, including David's loyal friend, Jonathan. Many will say that Jonathan's death was a tragic death, that he was merely the collateral damage of God's judgment upon Saul. But I agree with what one has said, that in reality, Jonathan's life and death was not a tragedy at all. It's not a tragedy, as has been said, to give up a kingdom that you cannot keep, to gain a kingdom that you cannot lose. And that is what Jonathan did. He was always in this book where God told him to be. Whether it was at David's side or whether it was submitting himself to his father, he was always where God wanted him. And I have no doubt that Jonathan is now in the presence of the Lord, enjoying the beginnings of his reward. And we read also that Saul was wounded but not killed. And so he asked his armor bearer to come and finish him off. But the armor bearer is too afraid to do so. And so Saul takes his sword and falls on it. And some have said that Saul was acting heroically here, but I believe that nothing could be farther from the truth. In many ways, as Tim Chester put it, Saul's suicide was symbolic. No one could take Saul from the throne. The people did not remove him. David did not remove him. In reality, Saul removed himself. And his suicide was the confirmation of that tragic choice. Saul had said that what he was afraid of was that if the Philistines captured him, they would make sport of him. And though he wasn't around to see it, they did make sport of Saul's body when they captured it. Earlier in this book, David cut off the head of the Philistine champion Goliath. And now the Philistines returned the favor and cut off Saul's head, this Israelite king who was taller than all of his people from the shoulder upward. They stripped off his armor and put it in their temple as if to say their gods had defeated the God of Israel on the battlefield. Of course, we know that that is not what actually happened, but that's how the Philistine news media would spin the story. And that was to be expected. And then to tack on to everything else they did, they took Saul's decapitated body along with the bodies of his sons, and they nailed them to the wall in the city of Beth Shan. And if there is a bright spot at the end of the story, it's what the men of Jabesh-Gilead do. They remembered how Saul had rescued them back at the very beginning of, their reign, of his reign when they were being attacked. And so some of them that night, in appreciation for what Saul had done, rode all night long to Bethshan and risked their lives to take down his body and the body of his sons from the wall and give them as good of a burial as they could given the situation. Now, what lesson can we learn from this sad ending to this sad story? Well, I think it is this. God's children can know that what God says will happen will happen. 
The Lord had said through his prophet Samuel that the kingdom would be taken from Saul, and here it was. God told us that Saul would die, and he does. He told us that Saul's sons would die, and they do. He said that Israel would be defeated, and they were. What God says will happen always happens because God's word never fails. Of course, here we're looking at a word of judgment, but the same principle, church, holds true for God's word of promise to us. What God has promised to those of us who know him will just as assuredly come to pass. He has said that Jesus will return, and he will. He has said that we will live with him forever, and we will. He has said that we will reign with him, and we will. He said that one day he will make all things new, and he will, because we know that what God says will happen will always happen, just as it does here. You know, I said at the beginning of this study of the book of 1 Samuel that there are three major characters in this story. The prophet Samuel, King Saul, and King David. Of course, when we resume our study of 2 Samuel later this year, we'll read a lot more about King David. But at this point of the story, Samuel is now gone. And now King Saul is dead as well. And so at this juncture, what are we to make of the complex character of King Saul? What can we learn from his life? You know, Saul started out so well, didn't he? Seemed like he had everything going for him. He was tall and handsome. He, was, he looked the part to be Israel's first king. He won his first battles by trusting in the Lord. And through that, he earned the support and love, devotion of Israel's people. But along the way, we started to see some chinks in his armor. We started to see along the way that Saul would very often disobey God or only partially obey God and that he didn't really have a high degree of admiration for the word of God that was spoke to him through the prophet Samuel. Now someone might say, well, hey, doesn't David do that? Doesn't David sin also? And, and in fact, doesn't David even sin in some ways that we might think are worse than the ways that Saul sins? And that's true. Neither Saul nor David were perfect kings, that perfect king was still to come. But there is a key difference between Saul and David when it comes to their sin. When David sinned, and we will see even more of his sin in 2 Samuel, he brings his sin to the Lord. And he confesses it, and he acknowledges it, and not only does he do that, but he repents of it. And he desires to turn around. He desires to live differently. But that is what Saul never, ever does. In this story, Saul is a religious man. He did religious things. He makes sacrifices. He makes offerings. There are times where it seemed like he was seeking God. There are times where it seemed like he was trying to do the right thing. But he never really humbled himself. He never really repented of his sin. And in the end, that was Saul's undoing. The Philistines didn't take Saul down. David was not even trying to take Saul down. Saul took Saul down because of his Stubborn refusal to surrender his life to the Lord. And that is why Saul's life is such a tragedy. And I think Saul gives us a picture of the tragic life being lived by many people still today. Because here's the truth. I want us to think about this. A a religious life without repentance and without a real relationship with God 
always ends like Saul's does. It always ends in tragedy. We said earlier that some stories don't end well. Saul's story definitely didn't. But the main question we need to think about today is not how Saul's story ended. It's how our story is going to end. Because we've all sinned just like Saul did. We've all sinned just like David did. There's nobody in the world that isn't a sinner. So the question isn't, have we sinned? We have sinned. The question is, what are we going to do with our sin? Because as we read through the whole of God's word, God has made a way for our sin to be forgiven. You know, in this story, Saul died a shameful death. They took his body and they nailed it up to a wall for everyone to see and for everyone to mock. And yet through Saul's death, God was at work. God was making a way for his true chosen king, King David, to come and to sit on the throne and to reign and to bring life and to bring peace to his people. That is what God was up to. And centuries later, God would do something similar, but it would be something far greater than that. His own son, Jesus Christ, would come, the true king of Israel. And on the cross, he would die what was considered a shameful death. He was stripped and he was lifted up. And just like Saul, he was nailed and left hanging there for everyone to see and everyone to mock. And they did mock. As the people walked by Jesus hanging on the cross, they said, you're supposed to be the king of the Jews. You could not even save yourself. And yet what they did not know is the wonderful plan of our God that through Jesus' death, all of our sin was being paid for. What they could not know is that three days later, God would bring victory out of defeat and life out of death and Jesus would rise from the dead and God would make a way for his true king, the son of David, to sit on his throne where he will be forever and ever and ever. God has made a way through the death of Jesus, through him being lifted up and nailed to a tree for you and me to be forgiven. But we have to accept King Jesus into our hearts. We have to invite him to come and to be the king of our life. We have to do what Saul couldn't do. We have to repent of our sins. Friend, it's not enough to be a religious person and to go to church. Saul was a religious person who never repented of his sins. The most important question there is in life is not if you're religious, but it is do you know Jesus Christ in a personal way? And I say that's the most important question in life because your answer to that question will determine whether your story ends well or whether it doesn't. I want to invite you to stand with me if you would. And if God is speaking to your heart right now and you would say, Boy, if my life ended today, I I don't know if my story would end well or it wouldn't. But I want my story to end well. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to come to God with the the faith that you've been speaking about. I want to ask you if God is speaking to you in that kind of way, that you'd come right now. I'm going to ask for some of our other pastors to be here at the front, just to be ready to meet with folks, to pray with you, to talk with you. Maybe you want to come and just pray because there's a, a battle going on in your life. We've talked about a lot of battles today. and Maybe you have a battle right now going on and you want to handle it in a way that would honor God, you can come and pray about that and leave that battle here before the Lord and pour out your heart before the Lord just as David did. But however you need to respond right now in this moment, you come 
as we sing together.